go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be concluding a series of, of miracles that Jesus uh, um, enacted. Um, so, uh, well, we'll just, we'll just dive in. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, we've, we've already covered two, uh, two, two miracles that Jesus dealt with. He healed a leper and uh, cleansed the leper not just, not just by speaking healing, not just doing something miraculous, which is incredible, but also by touching the leper. And so he crossed some, some, some boundaries there that honestly no priest of the time, no Levite would have actually done. And no Pharisee or Sadducee, really, at the, is what they were called at the time. And then Jesus also crossed cultural boundaries. So he crossed uh, ceremonial boundaries, and he crossed cultural boundaries by listening to a centurion and healing the centurion's servant. And he, did, and, and he marveled at the centurion's faith. Remember, that was last week. And now we come to Matthew 8, 14 through 17. So before I, before I read... I want to ask the question, have you ever walked into utter disaster? Something that was catastrophic, something, something terrible. Maybe you, maybe you uh, right, exactly, I think uh, we all have, but, but maybe you come, from home, uh, come home from work and your family is just fighting and all you do is walk in the door and it feels like you just got hit with a tidal wave. Or maybe you've walked into work and it was so busy that you can literally see people pulling their hair out as they're trying to scramble to get something done. Or maybe you grab the mail and you see a bill that you had forgotten about, but now you remember and you have no chance of paying it. Or maybe you come into class and realize that you didn't do your homework. Or lastly, maybe you're driving. You round a corner only to find a horrific car accident. I'm, I'm fairly certain we've all had some experience, if not one of those specific experiences, then something like it. I'm, uh, the reality is that we live in a very fallen world, a world where, where, where the stain of sin is clearly visible. No matter where you go, you can see where sin has reared its ugly head, where, where suffering is, is really the, uh, the, 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 primary, the primary mode of operating for people. And sometimes, again, we walk right into it. And that's what Jesus is actually going to encounter in our text today. He's going to walk into a door, and he's going to find something disastrous. He's going to find something that is potentially life-ending. And how Jesus responds is miraculous. What Jesus does is miraculous. But the way Matthew concludes these three healings is actually what I'm going to devote the majority of our time to today. So go ahead and open up in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 14, or I'm going to read verses 14 to 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's establish some observations about our text today. Oop, I didn't change that. I'm sorry. And now this is probably going to break it. You may not get a PowerPoint today again. That would be completely my bad, and I apologize. Um, so observation number one, just reading the text, we find that Peter has a house. Jesus enters Peter's house. And that seems really obvious, but I, I really want our attention drawn to that fact, primarily because Jesus himself didn't have a home. We find that in 820 when, when we talk about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, uh, and Jesus says to this, this guy, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus didn't have a home, but he had a home base, and that was Capernaum. Uh, the area of Capernaum is where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. And if you remember from, from just a couple weeks ago, or actually last week, Jesus comes into Capernaum, and that's where he's met by the centurion. And the centurion pleads for his servant's life. So, so Jesus comes back to this home base. He's, uh, he's you know, he's uh, walking into to Peter's house. Now, Peter's house was most likely Jesus' base of operations. He, that, that, was, that was probably where they met, uh, like his apostles, where they gathered and where Jesus did most of his, his teaching from. And I say that because, honestly, Peter's house is the only one mentioned. Uh, of, of, of all the places that he could go, Peter's house and the synagogue at Capernaum were the only two places really talked about throughout all the Gospels. So we can... We can think that that was where Jesus went, and he would have stayed there maybe with his apostles. Um, and uh, there are some commentators who think that Peter moved there because Jesus' ministry was centered there. I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the determiner of what Peter did, right? But, but at the time... Peter was fishing about two miles away. That's where his family was, where his brother Andrew lived. So, he, so about two miles away is where the business was centered, and that's about a day's journey. Now we think two miles. If you're going 60 miles an hour, that's, that's about two minutes. Woo! But at the time, it would have been about a, a day's journey, and it would have been not necessarily perilous, but it would have been on Roman roads, and Roman roads, when they were built, weren't the straightest. Uh, they didn't go from point A to point B in a straight line. It had to follow however the terrain was. So it would have taken Peter about two days, or I'm sorry, about, about one day to reach his fishing spot. He'd do all his business, and then he'd, work, he'd finish his work, and he'd send it back. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense for Peter to build a house two miles away from, from where he was working. Um, now, also at the time, Jewish men would tend to build houses and expecting a family, or maybe because they had a family. They would build a house where they have family to watch it. So usually it would be your brothers and sisters, right? If you're out fishing, somebody has to watch the building materials and make sure the stuff isn't stolen. So you would enlist family members to kind of watch over the place when you weren't there. Uh, you couldn't just draw out a home loan and go buy somebody's house 
you know, in Idaho, for instance. You can't just take out a loan, buy a new house, sell your own place, and go over there. You had to actually build it. So in Peter's case, Peter's brother and his father live two miles away. So who would Peter have to watch over his place? Well, my assumption, my guess, would be his in-laws. So I think that Peter actually lived in Capernaum, and that's where Jesus centered his ministry, uh, kind of out of, not convenience, that's not the right word, but because it, it was a good place. It was, it was a good place to, to do ministry. He would have had Peter's, Peter's house to stay at when he needed to. Um, Jesus wasn't homeless, but he was itinerant. He didn't have his own place to come to, and that was common at the time. So the first observation, again, is that Peter had a house. Peter did, Jesus didn't. The second observation is that Peter had to be married. That seems pretty obvious. Peter had a mother-in-law. This wasn't Jesus' mother-in-law, which if you misread the text, you can read that. And honestly, it's part of a conspiracy theory. Um, anyway, but, but Peter had a mother-in-law. There's only one way to have a mother-in-law. You got to be married to somebody, and that's that's your spouse's mom, <laughs> um, and that's that's obvious in the text. It's not so important to us in the Baptist tradition. We understand this. We get, hey, one of the apostles at least had a wife. Paul would have had to at some point had a wife to be a Pharisee. Uh, that was a requirement of being a Pharisee. But this is actually a, a point that I want, I want us to observe for anybody that maybe has a Roman Catholic tradition. Because in Roman Catholicism, popes, priests, monks, anybody basically in leadership cannot be married. It's part of a requirement. And there's actually ways to skirt that rule. If you uh, step down from your official position for a while, you can get married. Um, and that's how somebody like Brennan Manning, if you're familiar with, the, with him, uh, he wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. But he has been married for, or I think he passed away a couple years ago, but he, he was married for you know, 30 years because he stepped down from his position. Um, but he, then he wasn't paid by the Roman Catholic Church. Does that make sense? So if you are a current pope, priest, or Levite, or, uh, or monk, sorry, Pope, priest, uh, monk, you cannot be married. And the Roman Catholic Church recognizes Peter as the very first pope. And he was married. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I bring that up more, more to anybody that, that has a Roman Catholic background, because here's the very first pope who has a mother-in-law. Uh, you, you, technically, you can't be the pope based on canon law. So... Uh, that's, that's a much longer conversation, but it's an observation. If, if you ever have a conversation with, uh, with a Roman Catholic, um, you can always say, hey, by the way, not consistent with Scripture. Um, and actually, Peter's, Peter's marriage was, was part of Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther's proof that he should be able to be married, um, not after, uh, well, after he was condemned, but as a, as, as, as a, a, a friar, as a monk, in Roman Catholicism, he said, well, our first pope was, why can't I be? Um, and then he married a nun, uh, which if you, if, 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 if you ever want to talk about church history, his wife was potentially more influential in his life. So we have, we, than, than anybody else. So we, 
as people who have come from the Reformation have benefited more from Katie Luther than, uh, than potentially Martin Luther himself, even though Martin Luther is big uh, in history. So uh, going back to the text, what about Peter's wife? <laughs> That's that we don't know anything. Scripture is actually silent. There's a couple a couple statements that Peter makes in his letters where we could say, "Hey, maybe that's his wife." But she's not mentioned. The only person mentioned is her mom, Peter's mother-in-law. And it's here and in Luke and in Mark as well that Peter's mother-in-law gets healed by Jesus. So we we don't know anything about uh, Peter's wife herself. We don't know her name. Uh, scripture is silent. The, the annals of church history, of, of history itself, are completely silent on her. So anybody you talk to that goes, I know what happened to Peter's wife, they're a liar. So again, conspiracy theories. If you go, if you watch History Channel and you watch some of those like early 2000s documentaries about how Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and Peter's wife went off and did like miraculous things, they're, they're a liar. That's conjecture. And we care about truth as Christians, so, so we should focus on what's solid, grounded, and irrefutable truth, which is, again, Peter had a house, Peter was married. Those, those two observations are key. And the third observation is that Jesus enters the house, walks in the door, and the mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. Now, in our day, a fever is a symptom, right? If, if, if I have a fever, the, question is, the statement is not, you're sick with fever. It's, okay, you've got a fever. What are you sick with? Chances are it's either an infection or a virus. And so you start diagnosing what, what the person is sick with. But in Jesus' day, fever itself was a sickness. It could be anything from the flu to malaria. It could be something super normal, average, every day, or it could be something deadly. And we don't know which it is. We don't know if, if Peter's mother-in-law was just you know crashed on the couch they didn't have couches then, but if she was, <laughs> if she was crashed on a bed and, uh, and just, just laying there like, leave me alone, or if she had passed out in the middle of the floor and they opened the door and there is what looks like a dead body in front of them. We don't know. But what we can assume is that Peter opens the door to his own home he sees this woman who lives with her that he cares for, the, the mother of his wife lying there, and he may have panicked. He may have ran over to her and checked her, maybe, sh maybe shooken her, right? Done something, and maybe, maybe he was touching her, trying to figure out, like, okay, she's hot. Is she okay? Is she going to make it? I don't know what's going to happen. I doubt he walked in and went, uh, I got to clean that up. Like, I doubt, I doubt he was ambivalent to it. I doubt he was ups, like, just, just frustrated with it. Instead, this is, a, this is a woman that mothered his own wife. He's got to care. He's got to do something. We don't read what, Jesus, or what, what Peter did, but we do read what Jesus did. So we go to verse 15, and we read that Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, Lisa is an EMT. If you see someone lying on the ground 
and you go over, you're touching to diagnose. You're maybe checking their pulse, uh, maybe, maybe getting a thermometer, putting the back of your hand on their forehead. Okay, how hot do they feel? Do we need to get them medication? You start trying to diagnose so that you can help. The same would be true if any of us got home and someone we loved was lying on the floor. We would touch uh, in order to figure out what, what's going on, what's happening. But when you touch, when you touch a person who's sick, your intention is not to heal them. It's just to figure out what's wrong. You, you feel them, you hold them, you, you prop them up, right? Maybe they're having trouble breathing, you can prop them up. But at best, friends, our hands exist for triage, not for curing. But that's what we read about Jesus, is that he went to touch and he healed her. Jesus' hands go in and remove the fever. Not like a surgeon who has to prep and wash their hands and put them in an, emergent, or in an operating room that's clean and sterile and everybody's wearing masks. Well, everybody's wearing masks right now, but that's a different problem. But, but not, not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Jesus goes in and he helps. He cures. He takes it away. Have you ever had the Lord reach into your life and just remove something like the fever left Peter's mother-in-law? Have you ever had maybe a sin that you figured could never, ever, ever be stopped and God reaches in and grants you repentance? For all of us Christians, we can say, hey, we've you know, been touched by the Lord, which, uh, which honestly, the way that that phrase has maybe been hijacked over the years, I wouldn't necessarily say that specifically, but, but we can all know what it feels like to have that sense of forgiveness to have, to have Jesus come into our lives and wash us of our sin, that sense of relief where, 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 where it's just gone. And then for us to, for us to, to, begin, um, to, to begin repenting of sins again that we thought could never go away, that's normal. That's something all Christians can, can identify with. Some, an experience, we're going to have different stripes and colors of it. Some of, us, uh, some of us maybe were in biker gangs and we beat up people for a living and then the Lord comes into our life and boom, all of a sudden we, we just don't have those same inclinations. Some of us were alcoholics. Some of us were drug addicts. Some of us were depressed teenagers. Some of us grew up in the church and we just don't have that particular stripe, but we can still recognize that we've, we've always felt that sense of forgiveness in our lives from the Lord. But what happened to Peter's mother-in-law is unique. Sin is not a fever. Sin is not something that makes us collapse on the ground. But, but Peter's mother-in-law had something that made her sick, made her stop made her so ill that she wasn't able to do anything. And then Jesus comes in, removes the fever. And what does she do? What's her response? Again, look at verse 15. She rises and begins to serve him. Now, I'm assuming in the last year or so, you've all had the flu. I'm assuming in the last maybe five years, you've had a flu, right? When you're sick and you, you finally break that fever, do you get up and immediately start doing the dishes, working, working around the house, doing cleaning? No, <laughs> you are drained. And you continue sleeping because you have lost strength and you need to recuperate. 
Uh, you might get up and start doing those things, but you find you just don't have the stamina that you should be doing. But for Peter's mother-in-law, she's just better. She gets up and begins to serve him. And actually, if we read the account in both Mark and Luke, it's not just that, he's, that she serves Jesus, but that she serves everyone, all the apostles that are with him. So the, the, the point number one in your bulletin, if you're going to fill in the, the, the fill in the blanks, point number one is that Jesus has compassion on suffering people. And I know I've actually used that exact same point <laughs> before, but it's displayed here. Think about it. Jesus walks into a, a crisis and goes straight up and works a, mira a miracle both removing her fever instantaneously and she instantaneously has the strength to serve Jesus. So while we see this instance in other ways, in other passages, we see it specifically here. We, we see it specifically in these last couple sections, right? Jesus cleansing a leper. Jesus healing somebody from who knows how far away. Jesus is showing his, his compassion in different ways. He sees these people suffering, and he's determined to help. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question that I, I want really, like all of us, in the back of our minds, I want us questioning this. How are you displaying your gratitude for what the Lord has done in your life? How are you living in response to what he's done? Have you recently, like Peter's mother-in-law, risen up and served him? Perhaps you have in the past, perhaps you never have, or perhaps you are right now. I mean, uh, 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 several of you teach my children, and trust me, that's no small feat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm grateful for that. And I don't want to discredit that. I'm not trying to go uh, push that push that away or anything. But but we we're to serve him like Peter's mother-in-law does. And it's 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 good for us to serve him and constantly be asking that question: How am I displaying my gratitude for you, Lord? How am I publicly living in in gratefulness to you? How can I like Peter's mother-in-law get up? and serve you, rise and serve you. Because it takes, takes the rising, takes the serving. We, 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 we need to be doing that. So moving, moving through the verses, we come to verse 16, uh, and we find that Peter's mother-in-law is not actually the only person that, that, that he healed in that one day. Uh, we read verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Let's remember the time frame here. That evening, in one evening, Jesus healed everyone who came to him. Does that mean that everyone on earth was healed? No. No, it was everybody in Capernaum or in the surrounding regions. They come to Jesus, and Jesus heals them. He casts out these spirits by a word. He heals them with a word, maybe a touch but it was just those who came to him. And uh, I, 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 want us, I want our attention drawn to the fact that there were people who were not healed by Jesus at that time, not because they didn't come to him, but because, again, this is, this is just that one evening. 
There were other times that Jesus did healing, other times where Jesus is walking through the crowd and people come up to him and they say, hey, heal me, and uh, Jesus does. But how many more people are on the fringes? How many more people are pressing in? How many more people are not referenced in Scripture who just simply couldn't make it to Jesus? There are people today who are going to abuse this verse, and actually I read one of them this morning, uh, where, where they, they say, look, look at how Jesus healed all who came to him, all who came to him. All these people came to him, and they were healed. You today can come to Jesus and be healed of whatever malady you have. It's the same now, they lie to you. Just give me your money, and Jesus will take away your afflictions. They'll never say it that way. Sow a seed of faith. Throw money at a pastor, and, and Jesus will make your life wonderful. Those people are snakes, and they miss the fact that, that, uh, that Matthew is really pointing to, that there's this one evening, this one evening where he comes back to Peter's house, sees uh, Peter's mother-in-law lying on the floor, heals her, and then more people come and he heals but there's more to Jesus' ministry than just that, more than Jesus' healing. And these people will tell you, surely he, he takes our afflictions and bears our diseases. But they're misquoting. They're misunderstanding Matthew's point in verse 17. Healings, the gift of healing, is not normative in the sense that it was when Jesus walked the earth. Listen, if you, if Jesus always had a reason for doing the things that he does, all right? I'm going to backtrack from what I just said. Uh, or not backtrack, but I'm going, to, I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Jesus always had a reason for saying the things that he does, for doing the things he did at just the right time, at the, at the point that he did. And when the gospel writers record these things, they're trying to point something out. They're always trying to push you, not just to the story itself, but to something that lies underneath, which is Jesus' intentions, if you've read Matthew 1 through 8, you encounter a Jesus who's always intentional, always perfect, always showing something, always trying to display or tell us something. So we have to come to the question then, why did Jesus do these healings? Why did Matthew record these three healings in succession and then conclude them with verse 17? Surely it's not that Jesus is still healing in the same massive fashion that he did it with his earthly ministry. How do I know that? Because you and I are suffering today. Some things get cured, some things go away, again, all by the grace of God. Whether it's me going to the, the doctor and getting shots, whether it's me suffering from the cold and my body being able to fight it off, whatever it is, that is all the grace of God. It is. It is all God's grace. But it's not the same it's not the same as if I could walk up to Jesus, be like, hey, Jesus, I've got a tumor, and I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with it, and I would like it gone, and Jesus goes, it is done. And, you know, angels sing from on high, and then all of a sudden I can feel the tumor shrinking away. That's not the way that it is. Jesus was trying to do something. He was trying to display something, and Matthew catches it. 
So let's read verse 17, and let's kind of dissect it a little bit. Verse 17, this, meaning the healings that Jesus did, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Notice something in the way Matthew says that. This was, past tense, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Past tense again. He took, past tense, our illnesses and bore, past tense, our diseases. Now, in, all right, so I don't want to go down the Greek train too bad, but, I, but there's two past tense forms in Greek. There's, there's, there's the imperfect, which is a past tense event having a present tense effect, right? So think Chernobyl. Chernobyl was a disaster in the past, and it is still leaking radiation and therefore not safe to go around Chernobyl right now because it has a present tense effect. But, but, the, but the Matthew here is using not, a, not, not the, the imperfect tense, he's using the aorist tense, which is one of my professors used to always say is punctiliar, and he would do it like this. He'd pinch his fingers together and say punctiliar. Uh, and it was fun listening to him say it over and over and over again. But the aorist tense that Matthew's using is a past tense event that happened. Doesn't necessarily have a present tense effect. It's just past tense effect or past tense event. Um, it would be like you built a shed, but then you never used the shed. It would be like you sculpted a statue and then you buried it in the ground. Or it could be like Mount Rushmore. Person punctilier carved Mount Rushmore out of the rock, and you can go see it today, but it really doesn't have a whole lot of like use, like, a, like, a, like for instance, a water dam would have, right? Generating electricity. So I don't think, I, I, I don't, I don't want to harp on the grammar too much, but Matthew's thinking is reflected in the distinction, in his use of the aorist instead of the imperfect. Matthew is trying to point, he's, he's not just giving you proof text, like, hey, this is what Isaiah said, and look, Jesus did it, but he's trying to point us backwards, saying this was done by Jesus, this, this was for sure done by Jesus, and it was done for the purpose of fulfilling what Isaiah had promised. Now, we opened with Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. And if you were paying attention, it doesn't say what Matthew says it says. And that's actually because, uh, uh, because of the, the, version, uh, the version that Matthew would have been quoting. So there was in Matthew's time what's known as the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And Matthew is quoting the, the, the Greek translation. And in Isaiah 53, specifically in Isaiah 53, 4, which is where we get, where, where we get this statement, it sounds different. The Hebrew has this push towards uh, um, uh, the, the bearing... Um, the, the bearing of our griefs and our sorrows, and they, the, the, the rabbinical tradition would have said, yes, that's sin. And they would have been using that because of 53.6, that he, bear, he bore our iniquity. He bore the iniquity of us all. 
But the Greek, the, well, first off, the statement in the Hebrew is ambiguous, whether it's spiritual ailments or physical ailments. But it leans more on the spiritual. The Greek is ambiguous as well because it could be poetic, but it leans on the physical. So what Matthew is doing by quoting this verse and saying Jesus fulfilled this by, by actually literally healing people is not what the rabbis of the time would have been teaching about the Messiah. They wouldn't have been talking about this. They would have been talking about how the Messiah is going to come. He's a king. He's going to conquer. And by conquering, he's going to steer people back to the law. And by being steered back to the law, they would be healed of their, their, their griefs and their sorrows. They would, be, they would be saved from their sins. But Matthew realizes that, no, actually, this is something wonderful that Jesus did. Not just that it was miraculous that Jesus healed people, but that it was foretold hundreds of years ago that he was going to do this. Matthew is noticing essentially a new dimension of this, that it's not just this spiritual interpretation, but it's a literal, physical, this is what he's doing. And so Matthew throws this in, not just as a proof text, but as, as, as a praise of how Jesus did this. Jesus is displaying his authority over things that are unclean. He's displaying his authority over, over Gentile suffering. And he's also displaying his authority just on a mass level over all these effects of sin. And I've said this before, but just to clarify, illness is not a direct result of your personal sin, necessarily. If you, if you come down with COVID, or you come down with a cold, or you get cancer or you break your leg. It's not because necessarily of personal sin, but it's an effect of sin, meaning Adam and Eve, when they sinned, illnesses came into this world. They were part of the curse, part of the fall. So Matthew sees, again, this ambiguity of the word and the teaching towards a spiritual fulfillment, but he sees this great new, this wonderful new dimension of what was expected of the coming Messiah. This, friends, is the authority of Jesus. He can remove any suffering, any grief, any sorrow, any illness. He can bear it for us. And this leads us to point number two, which is that Jesus, in his compassion, fulfilled all dimensions of what he, had, he was promised to do. Now, I'm going to unpack that. But what I mean by that is that Jesus, when he came, he did not just do the bare minimum of what was expected of him. He fulfilled it to their greatest extent. Our, the griefs and sorrows that we face in this world, he, he bore to these people as they came. We, we suffer from similar diseases, many of which we've, by modern medicine, don't really suffer with anymore. We don't, we don't really suffer with the same types, but we do suffer, don't we? Aren't we in a global pandemic? Aren't people dying of the flu, of pneumonia, of, of, of coronavirus and complications based on it? We're in a global pandemic. Jesus can bear those things, but what Jesus did here was just to show his authority over them. In the text, he's showing his authority over these things. And Matthew 
Matthew is delighting in that. So on this one eventful evening, Jesus proved that the Messiah was better than the Jews were being taught. That, that he was more powerful than just, just steering people back to the law, but instead taking on people's sin, bearing it for them in his death eventually, but now bearing the consequences of sin and removing, oops, and removing the, 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 the effects of it from them. He was showing that he wasn't just an earthly king coming to conquer Rome, but that he was a gracious heavenly king who more exuberantly and powerfully fulfilled his own duties. Think of how wonderful that is. Imagine, imagine you had been promised a paycheck. Let's say it's a fair salary, right? But then when you're paid, when you finally get the consummated amount of all your hard work, it's 10 times the amount. Imagine 100 times, maybe even a million times. What's your response going to be? I mean, even if it's double, even if it's 1.2 times greater than what you got, what are you going to do? You're going to probably cry desperately happy tears. You're going to fall on your knees. You're going to thank your boss. You're going to be so filled with joy that you, you got paid more than you were promised. And that's honestly the attitude that we should have when we read these healings, when we read of the things that Jesus did, recognize that what they were taught was, yeah, this Messiah is going to come, he's going to conquer Rome, he's going to free the, the geographical land of Israel, and uh, then we're going to start worshiping the Lord again, new temple's going to be built. That was, that was the Jewish messianic hope. But Jesus was so much better, and is so much better we, we should take heart that whatever we suffer today, Jesus has compassion on us, but even more so because now we have this promised future fulfillment of, of, of spending eternity with him. Christians aren't only promised some earthly comfort. These people that got healed, they received an earthly comfort, one that only lasts for however many days until they get their next ailment. Who knows, maybe the leper, while he was skipping happily, uh, having been cleansed of his leprosy, tripped on a rock and broke his leg. Do you think he's going to be so happy that his leprosy has been cleansed? <laughs> Probably, but not, not a whole lot, because now his leg's broken. Or maybe the centurion's servant, after being healed, got run over by a horse just months after the fact. Regardless, the, we can rest assured that the centurion's servant died even though he was healed in that time. No, Christians aren't just promised some earthly comfort, like the one evening we're talking about here. We're permitted to read these events, knowing that Jesus has the authority to give us more than we could ever imagine. And, and, and honestly, with most people, that seems to be promised in our earthly death. When we die on this earth, all of our graces and mercies of God. We could pass them on to our kids, right? Uh, maybe we have a good fortune. We could throw down the line. But we don't care anymore because a Christian's hope is with Christ, in Christ. Christians are, 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 are uh, we, we should serve God not just because of the things that God does in our life today, but we serve God because we're gloriously happy that, that, that we have eternal joy, 
Think about it. You're promised perfect relief from your sins. Perfect. Perfect relief from your sins. Does sin affect you today? Yes. Every one of you. Sin affects you. Whether yours or somebody else's, you are, you are uh, uh, just assaulted by sin. But you're promised in Christ perfect relief. Perfect healing. Perfect fellowship with your creator. Perfect bearing of your sorrows and griefs. Perfect taking of your illnesses and diseases. Jesus does far more than the bare minimum of taking whatever, whatever ailment you're, you have today. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Do you know that? God's able to do far more abundantly than all you could ask or think. You could say, Jesus, I want to win the lottery, and you win the lottery. And honestly, when you get to heaven, that lottery winning is going to be garbage. It's going to be rubbish. It's going to be refuse in comparison to being with Christ. When Jesus consummates our faith and brings us into his presence, we are going to be so happy that we're going to extol him. We're going to, like Matthew, look back and and remember the things that we were promised and realize that it's so much better, infinitely better, that Jesus exceeds every possible expectation. Jesus is so much better than just the instances of healing that we read of. What we read here is only a sample. Remember the good old days when you can go to Costco and actually get a sample? Now they just have like a, like a sheet of plastic that says this is for display purposes only. But you'd go and you'd try the product to see if you're going to buy it, and then you buy it and you go home with it because it was good. What we receive today, what we see in this text, is but a sample of the capacity of the joy in Jesus Christ. His unimaginable greatness. Yes, Jesus has compassion on your suffering, which is point number one. Yes, Jesus fulfilled in the past tense all the dimensions of what his father promised that he would do through the prophets. But Jesus does oh so much more. Oh, so much more, friends. Oh, so much more. The Christian, the gospel hope is one that lasts forever regardless of your circumstances. Because why? Because, Jesus, because we know by the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus will fulfill every longing, every suffering, every, every heartache that you and I have. And we will be so overcome with joy in eternity that we pray for small samples of it now. Any relief you pray for, that's not your end game. That's not your end goal. Instead, when you pray to God, you say, please fulfill this, this longing, this aching in my life right now, but, but, but make, it, make it but a sample so that I can truly appreciate it when you give it to me in eternity. May we be astounded like Matthew was that he, he realizes, reading Isaiah 53, 4, that it was actually so much better than what, what he thought it was going to be. Remember, Matthew was a Jew. He's writing to Jews. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows that promise. He knows it. But then he sees it in Jesus and goes, it's better. It's so much better. So much so that he puts it in here again, saying, this fulfilled exactly what the prophet said. 
Jesus does and will exceed any expectations you have for him. Be more glorious, more wonderful, more incredible than my words can convey, than your thoughts can convey. Imagine being unimaginable, well, we can't, but you will be unimaginably satisfied in Christ if you know him here and then you know him in eternity. So what should you do? Be amazed at Jesus. Be amazed at him here and now. Be amazed at the mercies that he gives you. Be amazed at how wonderful he is. But know that it's just a sample of what you're going to experience. Jesus doesn't just check the boxes of prophecy. You ever seen those things? Like the, pro- the, the prophecies of Jesus. Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, he did this, he did this. He doesn't just fill the checkbox, put a check in it. Instead, he fulfills them. He abundantly fulfills them. In fact, he abundantly fulfills messianic uh, prophecies that most of the Jews at the time wouldn't have even said were messianic prophecies. That's how much Jesus fulfills promises. He fills in the box, and then he overflows out of the box. And then he covers the whole page with ink. Then the ink flows down the table. Jesus does it better. He exceeds those expectations. Be amazed at Jesus this Christmas. Be amazed that Jesus came. Be amazed that God himself incarnated. If you have your amazement of God as your sole focus, I can guarantee that you will be carried through struggles unimaginably difficult. Things that other people look at and go, I couldn't do it if I were you. That's the sort of joy that you have to have on this earth to really survive. And that's the joy that Jesus promises and gives. Let's pray. Lord, you did these wonderful healings and you showed your authority over over uncleanness. You showed your authority over Gentiles. You showed your authority over over all aspects of of Jewish suffering, of, of worldly suffering. But you didn't just take care of the one problem. You, uh, you, you, you really took care of the problems. I pray, God, that we can all think of testimonies in our own lives, testimonies of what you've done where, where we, we, we got more than we asked and that we can respond by, by serving you like Peter's mother-in-law. But I pray also that we would be able to conclude both here and in eternity that you are so much better than we thought you were. Amaze us, Lord. Amaze us at your goodness. Amaze us at your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. As you celebrate Christmas this week, remember, first off, that the cross would have never happened without the incarnation, without Jesus coming. Uh, Jesus' salvation never would have happened if he didn't come in the first place as a baby and grow in the way that he did. But also remember that as Jesus is the true point of Christmas, that he's also so much more wonderful than you can ever imagine or think. Go in peace, saints.